Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Couch Rotato Podcast. On today's show, Lucas is out this week, so I am joined by the first lady of the Couch Rotato Podcast, Jen, as her and I give our thoughts on the latest Woodstock 99 documentary, Trainwreck, which you can find now on Netflix. We give our reactions to some of the stuff that we didn't know that happened at the festival, and we also give our thoughts on who's to blame for all the shit that went down during the three-day weekend back in 1999. So, after the guitar riff, the Couch Potato Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Couch Potato Podcast. I am Russ. Unfortunately, Lucas will not be joining us tonight. He is on assignment, which is code for he's busy doing parenting stuff and can't be on this week. So, I scoured the globe to try to find an adequate co-host for this week's episode. I reached out to celebrities. I reached out to Andy Richter, uh, Hulk Hogan, various celebrities of the stage and screen. Uh, Most of the responses I got were, who's this fucking guy? Or please don't contact us again. So it gave me the bright idea. You know what? The best co-host I can have for this week is right inside my house. So this week I am joined by the First Lady of the Couch Potato Podcast, Jen. Welcome back to the show, Jen. Well, thank you, Russ. I appreciate that. But if I was the best choice, then why did you go through all of those other options first? It's, I'll be honest with you, it's for ratings. Oh. So mentioning all of those celebrities first is going to get you more ratings? Is that how that's going to go? Well, no, if I would have featured them on the show. Like, say, hey. Oh, Couch Potato Podcast this week featuring Conan O'Brien. I probably would have gotten thousands and thousands of listens. Maybe I'll just start advertising the show that way. There you go. Just well, to get that cheap, that cheap number like they do in television, the cheap uh, quarterly rating. Well, at least I'm famous in my household, and that's all that matters. You so. are. You are the queen bee, the superstar, the seven-time Academy Award winner for best mother and wife of the house. Oh, well, aren't you sweet? I try. Um, today's episode, uh, it's been kind of a slow week in the world of sports and professional wrestling, so we opted to go in a different route. Uh, we decided to combine a little bit of television, which we are a music podcast too, which we haven't done a music episode yet. Uh, we had one on the books for a couple weeks, but it always seems something happens where we can't do it, so that's coming down the road, but... The second of two uh, documentaries on Woodstock 99 dropped this weekend on Netflix, Trainwreck, uh, which is the the Netflix documentary. I'm trying to see if it had like an extra name to it. I know uh, the second one, oh, it's just Trainwreck, Woodstock 99. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know uh, HBO came out with one last year. It was called Peace, Love, and Rage. Is that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. That's why I thought I had seen the one on Netflix because a lot of the footage that they used from press conferences and then of the actual concert itself was actually some of the same clips that were used on the HBO Max one. So, yeah. And I thought it had like a really cool, like Woodstock, you know, semicolon, whatever cool second story nickname they had for it. So that's what I was looking up. So sorry for the pause. But uh, we're going to discuss the Netflix one today. Um, So before we get into what our impressions were of the documentary series, Jen, uh, how old were you when Woodstock 99 went down in New York? Oh, my. Let me think a minute. 
I was 17. Okay. Yeah. So what were your uh, memories of Woodstock 99? I don't know. Was you really, like, interested in what was going on up there? Did it, was it something like, hey, I got to go to this? What was... You know, honestly, I didn't even know there was a Woodstock 99 until years later. Really? <laughs> no, because back then, I listened to a bunch of boy bands and different things like that. I didn't... I mean, Jewel... Uh, let's see who else was there. Corn. I listened to some of their stuff, but as far as for knowing what music festivals were out there, that was just news that I didn't really pay attention to. Ah, so were you a big MTV kid? I was. And well, MTV has a big presence out there. You don't remember the advertisements? I for it? I honestly don't remember if I was just during that part of me being 17 years old, if I wasn't watching MTV at that time. I mean, I remember Kurt Loder being on MTV and that he did a lot of the news as far as what was happening in the music world and whatnot. But I just don't remember them televising from there for whatever reason. Right. I know for me, I was uh, almost 21 at the time, showing my age. Uh, Me and a friend actually contemplated up until... Three days before Woodstock 99, uh, we contemplated going to the festival. I don't remember how much tickets were. I know that that and trying to get to New York and then buying stuff for the festival was kind of our deterrent at the last minute. But uh, we were amongst the many that ordered it on pay-per-view at a friend's house. We, uh, I think it was $59.99 for the weekend when I looked it up. Yeah, it was $59.99. Me and a couple friends chipped in on it, watched it the whole weekend. Uh, my friend's uh, upstairs bedroom where we watched it at uh, was extremely hot. This was like during the dog days of summer. It wasn't quite as hot as it was in New York. But, yeah, I remember sweating my ass off watching that too. Um, I loved it. I primarily was focused on the music. Uh, Metallica, Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, Corn. Uh, I was a Chili Peppers fan at the time, so I know they closed out. So I was really f- interested in watching them perform live. Uh, I remember watching it on uh, MTV's coverage on Sunday night and them getting the hell out of Dodge because of all the shit that happened with the fires. Yeah, that was crazy. Crazy, crazy. Now, what friend was this, RJ? Yeah, my friend RJ. We got it at his house. My friend uh, Matt also pitched in on this, so it wasn't like all on one person. Yeah, I remember having a blast. A bunch of us just got together. We drank beers. Sweat our asses off and watch the festival uh, during the weekend. So I remember it being a good time just for that point of view. But um, so uh, with the uh, the Netflix series, uh, what were some of the things that you didn't know about the festival that uh, the documentary went into depth and kind of taught you? Well, <clears throat> well, like I said, I wasn't really aware of Woodstock '99 until really. If I did hear about it '99, it was just a brief statement or a blip on the news and I had forgotten about it but when I really started hearing about it honestly it was just in the past couple years when they had you know I think 2019 was what was it would it have been the 40th let's see 70 20th 19 would have been the 20 no I mean like well for 99 yeah but from the original it would have been what 40 years if I'm not mistaken in 2019 69 79 89 99 I mean, like 50-some years, I think. Oh, geez. Well, anyway, so I heard about it years later, and, I mean, I heard had heard, you know, all the big acts and whatnot that they had, 
But what I learned from this documentary as well as the HBO Max one is just how much chaos there was mm-hmm. and how not not only the chaos, but how haphazardly it was put together and you know, they cut costs on certain things like sanitation services and things like that and security. And part of what led to all of that rioting was the fact that they were getting price gouged, that they didn't have good sanitary or hygienic conditions. It wasn't safe. So then they didn't have enough security. So when the rioting, the fires and all of those things were happening, you couldn't even really control it before it got out of hand because they cut costs there too. So it's really interesting how everything just was a total cause and effect and how it started, you know, looking wonderful and it just ended in complete catastrophe. Yeah, I think one of the cool things that the uh, Netflix series did is it broke it down by the day and you kind of seen the progression of how things started out really good and optimistic and positive and how it slowly descended into chaos. Um, The HBO Max series kind of gives it more of the they offer more of their point of view of why these things happened whereas this one kind of gives you more of a detailed look at like all right this is just like okay this is what happened and then you come with your own conclusions on why people acted the way they did but yeah it was a really cool look of how like everything started out good and then as things descended into nighttime on friday night and then everything started going to hell on saturday then just led into the total chaos of Sunday. But yeah, there was some stuff that like I didn't know that had happened that the HBO series really didn't go into. Like uh they didn't really go into detail about how they basically hired third party companies to do sanitation mm. and the bathroom right, stuff right. and the food stuff and basically they kinda looked at it as a way to uh cut costs. So I'm guessing it's to cut costs so they can book all these bigger acts and to make money, which is kind of what they basically said at the beginning, that uh, the 94 version didn't make any money. And, of course, the 69 one did not make money for sure because people were sneaking into that one too. Right. So their ultimate goal was to make money on it. But, yeah, I didn't know that they had cut corners like that too. Right. And you, as you see as the, uh, the, the documentary goes on how – Basically, like with even in terms of sanitation, there's like scenes where it looks like it's a war zone with trash blowing everywhere. Right. To where right. it looks like whoever they hired to do the trash service just kind of neglected stuff. I mean, I kind of knew about the Porta John system because uh, I know the days after the festival originally they were kind of detailing that in the news. But yeah, it just how haphazard they were in terms of like taking care of the place, making sure everybody had like basically the most basic necessities that people should have wherever they go. And then, uh, yeah, security, they kind of went into that a little bit, but what I liked about the HBO series or uh, the Netflix series versus the HBO series is kind of how they, they get went into detail about how security just kind of like, oh, you know what, fuck it. They were talking about how they were giving away shirts and selling them so people could get backstage and <sighs> hustling at its best. Yeah, can you imagine being a uh, like a seventeen year old kid offering a security guard two hundred dollars to go meet DMX or Corn or <laughs> I didn't have two hundred dollars when I was seventeen, so hell no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, some of the stuff I'd kind of already knew about, but. It's still, it 
they paint a picture of like it really you don't know how bad it was until you see it on TV. You right. Know? Um. So I mean, any what else caught your attention or something that you learn about this? Well, something that was really disturbing to me, just being a female, is that all of the you know, and you can see it in a lot of the video or the well, rather the live footage from there that was taped, but you know, just women that are crowd surfing and some of them are topless and you see men ogling them, grabbing their breasts, grabbing their butts, grabbing their private parts, things like that. A woman should be able to crowd surf without worrying about things like that happening. When you see a man crowd surfing, you don't see anyone grabbing his ass or his private parts or anything. And then after the festival was all over, there were so many allegations of women that had been raped. Mm -hmm. And in certain instances, um, there were even allegations that there were women that had gotten raped in a mosh pit and people just stood by and looked on and did nothing. And not only that being disturbing, but the other thing, um, I believe it was one of the promoters, not Michael Lang, but the bald, the guy with like the horseshoe. Okay. So him, so he just kind of said in his interview for this documentary, well, I hate that it happened, but when you get 200,000 people together, a couple instances is going to happen. So it was like he was just so passive about it. Like, oh, it sucks it happened, but it was going to regardless. Like that kind of mentality and attitude, I it just it's infuriating for one. For two, it's just the fact that like not only just the passiveness about something like that happening to a person, but just like, Oh, Oh, well. And it's just like, whatever. And you can see why things ended up the way that they did with that HBO uh, film. He basically, he blamed the women for walking around topless and wearing risque clothing is why that, that, why that happened to him. And then like, as Stupid as he sounded in that, he comes across ten times worse than this. He didn't he make the comment that since Woodstock '99 was essentially the size of a city, that the amount of uh, cases that they had heard would be less than you'd get in a big city. So he kind of justified, like, "Well, yeah, it sucks, but right." That that's what I mean, like him being so passive about it. Like, I'm sorry it happened, but it was going to happen. You know what you just said. There were over 200,000 to two, around 250,000 people there. He's saying, oh, well, there were so many people here, just a couple, you know, oh, that's that's better than more, basically. Or it could have been a lot more, should have, could have been a lot more. And it's just his just attitude towards the whole thing just pissed me off. And I had forgotten about the HBO Max one where he's blaming it on, you know, a woman being topless or being dressed dressed in a risque manner, a woman should be able to dress how she wants to dress. Mm-hmm. If she wants to be topless, if she wants to wear risque clothing, that doesn't mean that she has a right to have her body violated. Right. Period. And then the other thing is, you see men in even 
in 99 walking around naked. You don't see women grabbing their penises and jostling it around or grabbing their ass and doing things like that. So they can do that. But then when women want to dress or, you know, a certain way or go around topless, it's, yeah, it's their fault. It's their fault. Right. So he's just between like what you're saying between the other documentary on HBO max and then this one on Netflix, it just, it's ridiculous. It's, painted as an absolute shit heel right human being. right he's he's a complete waste of flesh i mean in my opinion like i said the way that he acted in his interviews for both of those documentaries when posed with that question just says everything about why a big part of the reason is is that that festival was just an absolute disaster right even michael lang kind of apologized at, towards the end of his interview which uh, I completely forgot. Uh, he died three months after they. Like I didn't know when they had filmed this, but he had died right after they had gotten an interview in him. He kind of took responsibility for it, but it's kind of at the end of the day, he kind of seemed to be kind of. I don't know. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you don't really have feeling towards something, but. Like you're just you're just passive, or yeah. you um, lack empathy. And sometimes your your words say what you should be saying, but the um, or the emotion or lack thereof in your you know your voice or in your facial expressions just says something different. Right. He's and it, I mean he just kind of was sitting there and was just really calm, and he had no emotion whatsoever in his face or in his or I'm sorry, rather on his face or in his words. But he's just like yeah. I heard about it, you know, days after the allegations about rape and women being ogled and things like that. But I, I do feel really bad that it happened. But he never actually said the words, I'm sorry, or at least that I recall. I, do, I don't recall hearing that. And it was just kind of like, dude, like you're the founder of the original, you know, the OG Woodstock. And you this is it. Like they basically took the beautiful thing that you created and just turned it into a monster. <laughs> and, you know, when people think of Woodstock, they're always going to associate that name with 99 mm-hmm. and they're going to compare what was in 69 and then what was in 99. And it's just not going to be the same. So you would think that in, in the sense that you have compassion for something that happened to another human just like, oh, you know, I hate that it happened, and that was it. Right. Well, the one thing I didn't like about this uh, this series is they kind of glossed over a lot of the uh, the sexual allegations, you know, the things that happened to women at this. They kind of gave it like a, a five-minute piece near the end, and that was all you heard of it, really. I, I found it a bit unfortunate that considering, mm-hmm. like, I think that that's the biggest takeaway for me, you know, 20 plus years later, like that's the thing I'm always going to remember from Woodstock 99. Well, besides what I'm going to get into in a couple of minutes is the amount of women that were sexually assaulted and that it's horrifying. It's disgusting as a man to know that that happens to women where they, they couldn't go to a rock festival just to have fun and listen to music, they had to constantly be worried or even worse that something like that happened to them. And I, I think the fact that they glossed over it, just gave it like a five-minute piece was a little unfortunate, you know? 
No, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think there should have been more focus on what happened to women, as you're mentioning, with the ogling, the rape, et cetera. And, and another thing, how they were spoken to, just like, you know, men, like, show me your titties, you're a whore, just like they did that nasty sh- things. I didn't like, know that they were yelling that stuff to the performers. Cheryl Crow alluded right. to that. I didn't know that that even happened. Right, me either. And they were telling her to, like, show them her titties, and she's up there trying to sing and trying to put on a show, and they were doing that. Yeah, they even did it to her when she was being interviewed by MTV. Right, right. I know one of the most disturbing things from the whole series was the uh, the fat boy Slim uh, rave that he put on, and then mm-hmm. those people brought, like, they stole a, well, I think it was an ambulance. Yeah. And drove it in there, and then yeah. when they finally got, security finally got control of the ambulance, they found an underage girl passed out with her pants down. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I was just that. You said me, she was underage. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I found it. I was just that was so horrifying to hear that being a parent of a daughter. Right. It's just like, oh my god, like I can't even. Well, there was one girl on there that they interviewed, and she was only fourteen when she went. So I'm like, where, what in the world was going on at home with her that she was at a three day concert with a bunch of other you know, teenagers who possibly were as young as she was, and she went to something like that. Like, I just, you know, in addition to the women and then the how they were spoken to, how people were really spoken to in general after going into the second and third day, and then how people were treated in general with the price hikes, with the water going from like $6 to $12 in the last day with the toilets running over, no clean showers, the ground's just an absolute disaster. I don't think, I don't feel like they focused on any of that long enough. They focused on, you know, people setting fires and they focused a lot on how people were acting, but they didn't focus a lot on the calls, why their actions ended up the way that they did. Yeah. I mean, I, they, they kind of, to me, they went into detail somewhat about like, they kind of outlined like, okay, uh, it was incredibly hot for that whole weekend. Right. Which, like being in Ohio, it was that whole, the Midwest, and the East was hot as hell that whole weekend. Mm. So, uh, between the heat the lack of security, the lack of sanitation, the lack of, uh, uh, you know, restroom facilities, like being mm-hmm. properly maintained. Right. Uh, the aggressive music, they kind of go into it a little bit, but they don't really, they don't really go into why those factors cause people to act out. I think the MTV one does a little bit better job of giving you at least a perspective on why all that stuff happened. Mm-hmm. I think that if you watch this uh, series, that if you have HBO Max, I highly recommend. Uh, to me, it's my favorite streaming service, so you sign up for. I think they still do the free trials. I don't know, but uh, I always think I after watching this, I think they make a good companion piece. Mm-hmm. Watch the Netflix one first, and then watch. I would agree. The with HBO that. one next. I mean, you're going right. to get a lot of the same stuff rehashed, but I think they offer a little bit more of a, a perspective on why why this happened, they kind of go into the frat boy toxic masculinity, which was mm-hmm. very prevalent in the oh, late yeah. 90s. I think they do give the new metal uh, wave a little bit of a raw deal on that. I, I think they put too much of the blame on that genre of music. You mean like Rage Against the Machine? And- yeah, 
some of the things that Red Hot Chili Peppers were singing well, and it's more of like the bands that were hot during that era, the Corns, the Rage Against the Machines, oh. the Lump Biscuits, those oh, type I of see. bands. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I always think that this is a good companion piece, but yeah, they kind of go into detail and there's a lot of stuff that like I had heard that some of the water, they go into that a little bit on the HBO one about the water system, like how people just got fed up and broke the pipes right. for the drinking water. Right. But that woman, what they call that trench mouth, where she was drinking contaminated water from where the water that was supposed to be for drinking it eventually mixed in with like all the overrun from the yeah, Porta Johns. She had fever blisters, like she said, she had it all around the outside of her mouth and had sores inside her mouth and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I just thought that was, huh? It makes you know, we'll get into them in a minute, but uh, yeah, it just makes us grateful that. Things have somewhat changed on the festival scene. Right, right. uh, For sure. um, Now, let me ask you this. uh, Taking everything into consideration, you've watched the Netflix series. You've watched the HBO series. Have you done any reading? I know you're a big reader. Have Mm -hmm. you read anything like stories or news articles, books about the festival, or primarily what you know about the festival is just from the two series? Are you talking specific to Woodstock 99? 99? So mainly what I know has just been from the series that I, that we, we've watched, the HBO Max, and then now the Netflix. Mm-hmm. I mean, am I am I going to sit here and say that now it doesn't kind of intrigue me and make me want to go out and look for a book specific to that? Sure. I mean, I might do that tonight. Who knows? But anyhow, um, but yeah, it was just mainly from the series itself of what I know. From what you... From what you have watched and what you know about the festival and what happened, this is a, a good question. Who do you think is primarily to blame for what happened at Woodstock 99? Now, we have gotten, the promoters have gotten uh, blame. Uh, Limp Biscuit is probably the, uh, the most infamous uh, act or person that's been blamed for this. Uh, the... Uh, I guess the mindset and attitude of the uh, the college age white male has been to blame for what happened. But uh, who do you think is primarily the culprit for what went down at Woodstock '99? Well, I have to give it to two parties. It's really fifty fifty. It's the promoters and the people who put it on, and it's the crowd themselves. I mean, you even though so so first, let me start with the crowd. So, were they treated horrendously? Absolutely. Were they entitled to some of the actions that they took? You know, ripping shit down, things like that. Stealing because of all the price gouging that was going on. So, they basically were just tearing apart the vendor's tents the last day. Yeah, would I have done it? Shit, I can't say I wouldn't have. You know, at that age, like just being young and full of rage and just pissed off and... Not only, you know, being pumped up because of the music, but then all of the conditions surrounding it. I mean, it's just double the trouble to have something like that happen. Mm-hmm. So it, when you're an adult, do you make, are you responsible for making your own decisions? Absolutely. Some of the kids, though, there were that. They were kids. They weren't like, you know, like an 18-year-old is a kid to me now. But some of them were even younger than that. Some of them were underage, 14, 15 years old. I mean, 
they're kids. They're not adults. And if they're seeing adults act a certain way, they're liable to just go along and follow whatever they're doing. So yeah, the mob mentality. Right. Kinda, okay. so, right. Exactly. So, I mean, I feel like it started with just a bunch of drunk idiots. And then I, I feel like the rest just kind of followed along. And like what you're saying, they eventually became that mom mentality. On the flip side, though, were, were a lot of those people who went adults? Yes. Should they have known better? Yes. But then you have the other caveat, which is the producers and others that put that on. And they knew that something wrong could happen. They knew that in the beginning, they didn't have enough security per amount of people. They knew that the sanitation services and how they were, you know, assigning everything out to vendors to do different things who could price gouge and, and just cut corners on sanitation and things like that. They knew in the beginning they were doing that and they just had a fancy, you know, idea, like you said earlier as well, trying to make money. And I mean, so they just cut vital corners that never should have been cut, Mm -hmm. you know, their responsibility, as it said in the documentary, their primary responsibility was to ensure that who patronized that event were safe, that they had safe conditions that, you know, and that's hygiene, their personal safety, uh, you know, women that they weren't sexually violated. Those were all things that they were responsible for ensuring and the corners that they cut evident evidently showed that they didn't care. So, I mean, to me, I, I mean, I say 50, 50, but I also have to rethink that and say, was it 70, 30, was it 80, 20, was it 80? And when I give those numbers, that would be first, the higher number would be on the promoter. The lower would be on those who went there. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to say, I guess, maybe if you weren't there and you didn't have like either, you know, you weren't there as like a patron or if you were perhaps like behind the scenes, you can't really say for sure really how it would have went. Right. But I have to say if, if I had to pick one, it would be the promoters and others who put that on. If I had to pick one. Do you think, I mean, so you don't think the, the bands that played like the music that was booked for the show had anything to do with. Well, I mean, music is music. You know, they're up there playing a song. It's not like they're up there saying, hey, tear everything down here. You know, knock over a sound tower, rape women. You know what I mean? Like, get in fights with people, talk derogatory to people, ogle people when they're trying to crowd surf. They didn't say those exact words. The nature of their music is, you know, anarchy or just... Um, nihilist or just don't give a shit, whatever. There, there was a lot of angsty music up there. What does that get people riled up? Well, hell yeah. But how people react in response to music is them. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to listen to Marilyn Manson. If I did half the things and some of the things he discussed in his music, I probably would have been locked up for a while. And, you know, listening to his music didn't cause me to go out and, like, commit a crime or worship Satan or kill kill a child. I mean, you know, like, the craziness that he talks about in his music, I listen to it all the time, but I didn't go out and do any of those things because I knew better because I'm an adult. Mm-hmm. So, you know, saying that music caused people to actually take those actions i can't blame it on a musician yeah would would that music get someone riled up absolutely 
could the conditions that they were in the heat outside the even hotter because of so many people being shoved into one space. I mean, you seen that there was like just literally no room to even move. It was just a whole like wall, just like a waterfall of people. And I mean, so there were a lot of other factors that led to, you know, it being all rosy and nice starting out. And then it was hell on earth at the end. So there were a lot of factors of that, but I can't sit here and say, Oh, a musician, you know, Fred Durst up there singing break shit or um, Red Hot Chili Peppers rendition of Jimi Hendrix's Fire, I can't say that those musicians singing music like that is what actually calls those actions to occur. So I'd have to say no. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's kind of where I was uh, going to. Like, I I primarily, I blame this solely on the people that put the festival on. Yeah. Uh, I think, first off, when you, you cut corners... That is a recipe for disaster. I think that if anybody that listens to this show, which we all know no one listens to this show, but um, people that, if you are listening to this show, that if you know anybody that's trying to put on a music festival, whether it's something on the size of Woodstock or something even much smaller, like you put on for like local bands in your community, yeah, cutting corners, especially for the most basic human needs, is not the way to go. I think that was a recipe for disaster. I think booking it on an abandoned Air Force base with little to no shade in the middle of summer, I mean, you can't, you can never forecast what the temperatures are going to be like. I mean, I, I think being a weatherman and being a baseball player are the two professions in life, or a weather person, I, not a weatherman, but a weather, you know, meteorologist, a baseball player. I think those are the only two professions where you can fail more often than not and still be very successful at your job. But still having it on an abandoned Air Force field with little to no shade uh, also doesn't bode well to have, you know, for people to have a good time at a festival or anything like that. I mean, I understand why they did it because they were trying to prevent people from sneaking in, which was the issues with the 69 and 94 one. But I think between the cutting of corners with food, the sanitation, uh, you know, the bathroom situation, um, I think they are to blame too for the, the bands that were booked. It seemed to be, like, I was just kind of going through the... The lineup, I kind of cherry-picked. I didn't go through all of it. But it seems to be the popular music of the day, which I think, being an MTV kid, I was an MTV kid too, uh, the two biggest music genres, well, three, was uh, hip-hop and rap, heavy metal, and pop music. They did not book, I think, there was, actually, there wasn't any pop bands well, you had James Brown, but he was more James like R and B. Yeah, um, there was very few rap. I acts. mean, Cheryl Crow, those kind of pop rock. I mean, if you're going to put any, well, and Jewel is folk music for for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I mean, so. they had Jewel, they had Cheryl Crow, they right. had Alanis Morissette play right. too. But primarily, when you think about the bands that played there, it was 
the super ultra aggressive right heavy no. metal bands of right. the, the, the day. I agree. And I think they could have done a better job of mixing up different genres to where right. there's Right. Right. <clears throat> I think that when you book music festivals that I think it could be too much if you just do like like say for example if you book Slipknot, Lamb of God, uh Raised Against the Machine, Judas Priest. Well, not, not Judas Priest so much, oh. but you book like Megadeth. Well, not even Slayer. Me- like someone, yeah, like a Slayer, like <laughs> okay. in a row. Got you. Okay. I mean, you know, that's going to get people continue to rile up, and I think right. you need a cool down period. <laughs> you do. I and, agree. And I think just with the conditions that these people are dealing with on, you know, throughout the weekend, and then on top of that, they're already pissed off. They're pissed off. They're having to pay tons of money for food and water. They're pissed off that they have no shade to get out of the sun. They're pissed off because they can't take a shower. They're pissed off because they can't go to the bathroom without, you know, getting sick. Uh, I mean, and then you're adding all this fuel to the fire where you're like, Saturday night was the weekend that I, or the day that I wanted to go. If I could pick one day, it was because it was Limp Biscuit, Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica were the bands closing yeah, it out. that's a sweet you, lineup. It is. But if you would have kind of mixed up you know, different genres in there a little bit mm-hmm. better. I think it would have given people an opportunity to at least kind of cool down a little bit. Right, right. But I think that they're solely to blame for it, not having, like, proper security, uh, you know, and the cutting of the corners. I, I give them all the blame. And I, I can't really – I can't blame the concert goers themselves. I mean, yeah, granted, every – concert every festival that you and i've ever been to there's always a couple of bad apples people are assholes right at every show we've ever been to but i think at the end of the day it just it people had slowly gotten so Mm -hmm. fed up with the situation Mm -hmm. at hand that they just lashed out it's like okay if security doesn't give a shit about the things that are going on i don't either so i'm just gonna fucking tear the shit down right so i can't really blame it on the the people now, the people that decided it was okay to assault a woman, yeah, right. You dudes need your fucking dicks cut off, burning hell. You, no way you should be doing that shit at all. That's a different basket altogether. But the people that were involved in the riots, you know, right. setting shit on fire, busting down the okay. Right. I mean, just you're pissed off after three days, right? Um, I'm also with you. Like, I can't really blame the musicians per se. I mean, like. Could Fred Durst have kind of calmed the crowd down? Yeah, but at you know, at the end of the day, I mean, he's there. He's getting paid to do his job, right? And I mean, security could have kind of quelled that a little bit. And I tell you what, though, that scene where they're rocking the music, the sound tower, yeah, it was horrifying to see. Yeah, because you were thinking of how many people that could potentially land on because that's what I was thinking. I was like, Oh my God, that's all. That's like pretty much a hundred percent metal. Whomever that lands on they're dead. Like that weighs probably thousands of pounds. And I'm just like, I don't know if it actually injured anyone or fell on anyone or not. I didn't get a chance to no, look it, it up. It, it, it didn't. Packed, so yeah. everybody did clear out, huh? Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it could have been it so much worse. Cause I only remember them ripping the plywood off of a, barrier at the bottom right. and crowd surfing on. I don't, I, that was new to me where they were shaking the sound tower. Cause if they would have done that, that thing would have fallen. I think the whole festival would have been canceled right, right after that. So. <clears throat> right. Um, it, it does make me grateful now 
<clears throat> watching these two um, series on Woodstock 99. Uh, you and I are festival goers. Um, I know yeah. there's tons of music festivals out there. There's different festivals for different genres of music, but uh, you and I being fans of rock and heavy metal music, we tend to frequent the Danny Wimmer Presents festivals. Uh, he has uh, Louder Than Life in Louisville, Kentucky. He has Aftershock in Sacramento, California. He used to do the Rock on the Range Festival here in, uh, near our hometown in Columbus, Ohio. Um, it makes me grateful that he puts so much care and concern into his festivals. Uh, he's, his guys, uh, his second-in-command, Danny Hayes, is always like, during these festivals is always on social media, like, hey, what can we do better so they can improve the festival as the festival's going on? I remember the first year of Louder Than Life, the biggest complaint was there was not enough porta johns, which you and I mm-hmm. went to that. That was true. Like, the bathroom situation kind of stunk. So the second day of the festival, they completely remedied that situation. Yep. Uh, and then they've also, uh, like, if there wasn't enough water, like the refill stations for your water, they brought more of that stuff in. They're trying to make it more accessible for people that have disabilities or working on improving that as the festival goes on. They do a really good job. I mean, they catch a lot of shit for the stuff that happens. A lot of it's out of their control, like the weather and stuff like that. But they always do a really good job of putting these festivals on. And, I mean, I'm sure that the people that do Coachella, the people that do Bonnaroo, I'm probably missing a like a bunch of the different music festivals across Band the country. Tour, although I don't think they that have a, that anymore. But they don't. That was more of like a touring oh, festival. That's kind of like oh. Ozfest used to be, where they would tour oh, okay, the country okay. and Got play you. different lo- versus you. being in like one set location. So, Got you. But yeah, um, uh, we're actually a little under time, so this is uh, perfect. But uh, before we wrap things up, is there anything you want to add? Um, no, just to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying, like I, that is one of the things that I definitely like about the Danny Wimmer presents festivals, primarily louder than life is what we go to nowadays with COVID times. But, um, I just think that it's always well organized. I feel like the security, I, I I think that they do a thorough job of checking people coming in. They're stringent, but not overly stringent on what you're able to carry in. I do feel that the disability, access that they provide is a lot better than what it used to be and for all intents and purposes I feel safe at their festivals I feel like they have enough security for the most part that you know if something crazy were to happen like someone setting a fire that there would be enough security there where they could react quickly and also keep everyone else safe well I don't I think too they they know it's not a good idea to give 200,000 plus angry people right. candles. <clears throat> thinking right. it's a good idea to have a candlelit it, vigil. That too. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's crazy. Um, well, that's going to wrap up today's episode. Thank you for being a last minute fill-in. I know we've been trying to get you on the show for a few weeks now. But I it know. seems like you were under the weather. And now Lucas has his uh, fatherly assignment for the week. Yes. So we couldn't get him on. So we're going to. Have you back on sooner rather than later? Okay. Um, Just let me know. uh, If you uh, get a chance, definitely check out both of the Woodstock 99 documentaries. Uh, Peace, Love, and Rage, Story of Woodstock 99, is available on HBO Max. It's under the Music Box series, which is a very good, I think there's six or seven episodes done by uh, Bill Simmons' uh, Ringer team. 
with HBO. Um, they have a couple of really good ones. There's one about Juice World. The Woodstock 99 one's really good. There's a, an Atlantis Morissette one. Might be right down your alley. Might be. That's really good. And then the uh, Trainwreck, Woodstock 99, is available on Netflix. Just dropped this weekend. Three-part episode, uh, nice, easy 45-minute watch. Well, I wouldn't say it's easy because there's a lot of horrific shit right, in there. But, right, uh, Definitely a very captivating three-part watch. So definitely check it out. So until next week, we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. And that will do it for today's episode. We hope you guys and gals enjoyed what you heard. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter to get all the latest show updates. If you did like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. We drop episodes each and every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on a single episode of the Couch Potato Podcast. So until next Tuesday, we will talk to you guys later.